There are many Christian traditions that vary in style, approach, and focus. We continue exploring this diversity by diving deeper into the Reformed tradition after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello, and welcome to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. At Upper House, we exist to serve the UW and the larger Madison community, which includes many of the churches oriented toward the university. This is the second conversation in a new intermittent series on Upwards, where we explore different Christian traditions with the aim of growing in understanding and shared vision for this campus and city. We launched with Anglicanism, talking to Father Scott Cunningham back in May. So if this topic interests you, be sure to go back and check that one out as well. My conversation in this episode is with Reformed pastor Chris Gansky, whose knowledge of the Reformed tradition is deep, and we even get into Calvin's view of the Eucharist, among other topics, and Chris's vision for the church is inspiring. Chris Gansky is the senior and founding pastor of City Reformed Church in downtown Milwaukee, a congregation affiliated with the Christian Reformed Church in North America. He has a Master's of Divinity from Princeton Theological Seminary, a PhD in theology from Marquette University. He studied theology at the University of Tübingen in Germany and has taught theology at Yale University. He and his wife Tess are originally from Florida and have two children. We hope you enjoy this Upwards conversation with Chris Gansky. Uh, welcome, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Good to be with you. Well, today we're going to get into the Reformed tradition, and that's a, a theological tradition, an ecclesiological, uh, at least uh, maybe, I don't know if tradition is is too strong of a word, but uh, it is not. part of the... It is <laughs> not. Okay, tradition. there we go. It's a tradition. Laying um, some stakes in the we'll ground get, right now. <laughs> great, great. That's great. So we'll get into all that, um, but I was excited to... Uh, to have this conversation with Chris. Uh, we are uh, mutual friends of uh, Reverend Jim Kirk, who's here in Madison, who uh, leads a, a Christian Reformed Church. And Jim put me in contact with Chris. So Chris, before we jump into a, a much more conceptual part of the conversation where we get into what it means to be Reformed and what are the distinctive uh, a- aspects of that, can you just give us some sense of how you came to be a interested in the reform tradition. Uh, let's start off with that. Yeah. So <clears throat> when I think about, uh, the reform tradition, you know, um, I, I, I have to be thoughtful about what kind of how I'm answering that, whether I'm answering that personally, mm-hmm. whether I'm answering that as a pastor or whether I'm answering that as a scholar. And in a way, as I've, I've reflected a little bit about how to share and communicate, they're always mixed together for me. So I'll, I'll start with the personal. I didn't grow up in the church or I wasn't, you know, um, a Christian, became a Christian in high school through a Pentecostal family that shared Christ with me and um, found myself in a Bible church for formative years. But then there kind of encountered Reformed theology, at least in the kind of doctrines of grace uh, way. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, was reading John Calvin in high school and, um, and then as one does, yes, right? exactly. Right. Uh, so kind of getting exposed to, um, doctrines of grace and the reformed tradition. And, um, and from there I ended up, um, studying philosophy as an undergrad, um, with, and feeling already a call to ministry, but also very kind of academically or, you know, very intellectually minded, Went to Princeton Seminary, which is uh, Presbyterian Reform, so in the mainline tradition. And then from there, uh, a couple different stops. But I ended up coming to Marquette University to do a PhD in systematic theology. And it's really there, I think, ironically, in a Catholic context, that I really, I think, did a deep dive into the Reformed tradition, um, reading sources more carefully and closely, and, and getting a sense of the historic shape of the Reformed tradition. And then when I finished uh, my PhD work, I felt a call to ministry rather than um, 
pursuing an academic career and planted a church in uh, city center Milwaukee in 2011. And I've been the pastor of that church um, since that time. And, uh, and that church is in the Christian Reformed Church denomination, which is part of the Reformed denomination, but kind of in the Dutch side of things. Yeah. So when you were at Marquette, that's an interesting context to explore, uh, I guess, a Protestant tradition. What was it like there to be, be a, you know, at a Catholic university? I'm not exactly sure how, um, uh, how Catholic in the sense of if, if most of your faculty were Catholic or, or what, but what was it like to be exploring the Reformed tradition at a place like Marquette? Honestly, it was a great place because nobody had a dog in the fight. <laughs> so, there, mm. so, I mean, in places like even a Princeton, which, you know, I mean, it's more mainline takes on the Reformed tradition, so various arguments about how to interpret Karl Barth's theology or something, right? Which I was mm. exposed to. But Or if you were in a traditional like Westminster, you know, you have, you know, you have these intramural sort of debates and you can feel like you have to side with one side or the other. But, but at Marquette, I'd already been exposed to kind of the broad sources of the tradition and had a sense of it. But I was kind of free as a scholar, as a, as a grad student, to kind of, you know, not feel like I had to be a part of any particular school. And, you know, it was also, I mean, shaped by my experience of just participating in a Reformed church and trying to be a good good church member and lay leader. And, um, and so it was actually a really great experience. And my advisor... Ralph Dacoli, who's who who died right shortly after my I finished, was a very just a very devout Catholic, very ecumenical, um, kind of a Thomist, I guess. Um, but he he knew the Reformed tradition really well and was just always very encouraging. And so a lot of us students at Marquette, many of us from different traditions, Wesleyan, Pentecostal, Vineyard, um, Orthodox. I mean, it was a it was a very kind of diverse Christian you know environment, and I think. The Catholic faculty on the whole were very encouraging and receptive. Of that. So it was a great, it was really good context in which to do that. Yeah, I resonate with that a bit. I'm someone who has written a lot about the fundamentalist world and it took a training at a place like UW Madison, which is about as far away from Christian fundamentalism as you can get to have sort of the distance to be able to look at the different sides and mm -hmm. not feel uh, maybe like I had to pick a side. And I remember I was talking to, um, a, a grad student one time who went to Moody Bible Institute for their undergrad. And he talked about at the cafeteria, like when they would um, have lunch or dinner together, they would actually divide up sometimes their tables based on whether you were a Calvinist or an Arminian. And that was just so... I believe that. Uh, it was sort of so... It, it was funny. I, it was very serious to him. He actually sort of was like, I don't like doing these types of... Having these kinds of conversations because there's so much of this social baggage that comes with yeah. which side are you on. But... Um, I, that was totally foreign to me, even though it, it, sort of on a scholarly level, I was very interested in those things. I didn't have to sort of live out um, some type of uh, theological battle um, in, my, in yeah. my studies. And that actually, I think, freed me up to explore a bit more um, yeah. uh, the, the ideas and everything like that. So um, I resonate there. Uh, tell us a bit about City Reformed Church. This is the church uh, you planted. Mm -hmm. Tell us when was that, and and what does it uh, sort of look like to be part of City Reformed Church? Yeah, so City Reformed Church is part of the Christian Reformed Church in North America. Um, most people think Calvin University, Calvin College, or now University. Um, you know, that's the denomination that's associated with Calvin Seminary. Mm. Uh, yeah, so City Reformed Church is a plant that we started in uh, 2012 in the winter of 2012, and um, we are, yeah, I, I use the language of city center. I mean, we're right, you know, we're just a couple miles off of downtown Milwaukee towards the lake in a pretty diverse urban neighborhood, pretty progressive, um, pretty dynamic context in terms of all different walks of life. And, you know, I mean, I think, you know, our congregation, it definitely skews more kind of uh, upper middle class educated although because of where we're located it's a it's a kind of a crossroads in milwaukee of you know low income homeless to high rises along the lake kind of thing um you know a number of the people from the neighborhood who are part of the church are definitely coming from a different you know socioeconomic background educationally or no exposure whatsoever to reformed <laughs> what is reformed? What does that mean? I get that question a lot. Um, right. And or John, because the church is in the neighborhood or they, 
they're like, you know, you guys preach the Bible. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, um, it's a pretty, and you know, we're, we're not in a traditional church building. Um, it's a renovated space with, um, and we have a lot of, uh, community space up front to engage. So yeah, it looks very different, but you know, in terms of our worship, I mean, most people would come and visit and be like, Oh, this is a very traditional church, right? We have a liturgy that we print. Um, we're not quite Anglican, although you might say Anglican light, but we have weekly Lord's supper, you know, we have prayers we read, we say the creed and, and the Lord's prayer every week. So those kinds of aspects are uh, part of it. And, you know, this is, again, very much a, a outgrowth of my understanding of the Reformed tradition, which is it does have a sacramental theology and a liturgical theology. And even though that's not represented across the board, um, for Calvin in particular, and uh, parts of the tradition, it's, it's really robust. And, and, and this is where I speak as a pastor and as an academic about the Reformed tradition. It's like part of the reason I decided not to go into academia is I, I was writing a dissertation on Calvin and the Lord's Supper and the church and the Holy Spirit. And I had very strong views of what the church should be and do. <laughs> it's like, but it's one thing to have a vision of what the church should be and do and how churches need to change and what we need to do. And another thing to do it. Right. And, right. and I thought, well, you know, if I really believe in the church, I should be a pastor. And, and I've always had a desire to be a pastor. And so it's not like it was a switch, but I wasn't sure how to fit that together. And so I kind of embraced the role of pastor theologian and just, you know, and I love it. And, and so being a pastor and so trying to bring that, that theological vision into practice is, is uh, a big part of, you know, who we are. So. You mentioned that, that term just now, pastor theologian. I've, I've heard that um, invoked uh, a few different places recently. One sort of historically that there's a tradition of pastor theologians. And another uh, pointing to the future, saying this might be the future of theological um, thinking and, and production is, is sort of pastor theologians doing it. What do you mean when you say you're a pastor theologian? Yeah, well, very simply, it means everything I do, I see as theological. Institution building, mm -hmm. for instance, like planning a church. It's not just like going to the Harvard, Harvard Business Review or listen to a bunch of TED Talks about like the themes and then trying to take those and apply it to the gospel. It's actually institution building and ecclesiology. I mean, it's theological activity. And so I, I see everything I do as, as a form of theology, but in, in action and practice, whether it's formation of a community, the shepherding of it, you know, uh, offering spiritual guidance and counseling to people. Um, it's all theological, right? And so part of, part of, you know, that word, it, it, and I, I like the phrase pastor theologian. It's definitely got a little bit more buzz around it. Um, but but I, I think at its best, it doesn't mean pastors writing books. It means mm. pastors doing the work of ministry theologically, not just in terms of technique or, you know, trying, you know, uh, or, or sort of therapeutic culture or things like that. It's really thinking how does right. God and all these different aspects of the ministry uh, act and speak and engage people. And so that's what I mean. And so, so a lot of times people think they can't be a pastor theologian unless they have a PhD. And I, I, I just, uh, I really dislike that way of seeing, seeing things. And, and so, I mean, God does call certain pastors to write books, right? Mm -hmm. But for the, for the average pastor, what the world needs are not more pastors writing books. <laughs> what the world needs is, right. what the church needs is more pastors pastoring theologically, preaching theologically, if that makes sense. Yep, that's very helpful. Uh, one more question about your church. So it's called City Reformed Church. You you mentioned this uh, a little that people might not be familiar with the term reformed, uh, particularly maybe a post-Christian urban urban setting. What do people think? Or do they, do people have assumptions about what reformed means? I think of my own church had uh, used to be called in an earlier era um, Blackhawk Evangelical Free Church, and so a lot of people thought evangelical free meant like sugar free, like yeah. there are no evangelicals in this church. <laughs> That's great. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which is obviously the opposite of what it's actually yeah, uh, yeah. signifying. But I wonder if, if the term reformed has certain uh, connotations for, for people in Milwaukee. Well, Milwaukee is historically very, very Catholic and very Lutheran. Right. And in part, that's because of strong immigration patterns from Germany and also from Poland. Uh, so most people are not familiar with reformed. Uh, you know, depending on who I'm talking to, if I'm talking to a Lutheran, some of the Lutherans will be a little more familiar. 
I'll, I will talk about the way that, you know, uh, the Reformed tradition is part, you know, a sister of the Lutheran tradition, the Reformation. If I'm talking to Catholics, I'll just talk broadly about the Reformation um, mm -hmm. and, and just sort of mm -hmm. try to situate. But most people, yeah, they have very little categories and context, and it's tricky. Uh, there's, no, there's no one, there's like, I always, whenever anybody's asking me that question, if I don't know them, my immediate response is, well, tell me a little bit about your background and what your experience mm -hmm. of church is, because how I respond it will, will depend a lot on that. So, right. but one thing that I, I want to mention too, and this is getting at some of the theological distinctives, um, and it, it relates to the story you shared earlier about your experience at, at Moody and other places. But I mean, one of the things that I think I really came to a full appreciation of, um, really when I was at Marquette, but began a little bit earlier too, was just a sense of the Catholicity of the Reformed tradition. And for, for me, and I, and I really emphasize this quite a bit at our church, is that we are Reformed and Catholic. And by Catholic, I don't mean Roman Catholic, but, but I do mean more than just universal. And people sometimes ask me when we say the creed, you know, there's a part in the creed that says, I believe, you know, in the Holy Spirit, you know, the forgiveness of sins, you know, the Holy Catholic Church. And people will ask me, well, are you... You, you believe in the Roman Catholic Church? I'm like, no. <laughs> I believe the Roman Catholic Church is a real church, but I don't think it's the mm -hmm. only church. But it's, it's mm -hmm. always a good, I mean, and I talk about this in our membership classes about Catholicity. And, and um, this is an aspect of the Reformation that I think is being recovered. Um, mm -hmm. And it still needs a lot of work. But we try to practice it here um, of just Catholicity, meaning, you know, who we are, I mean, we're reformed, but we're reformed in a Catholic way, not in a sectarian way. Yeah, and, you know, there's yeah. a lot to that. I mean, if you wanted to know what that means, but, but I think a lot of that, I, I kind of, that space at Marquette really was a Catholic space and uh, where I could see some of my colleagues um, in different, just very different traditions, like had them over for dinner. <laughs> and um, we, there was this, this sense of real, like we really do share a common faith and a common faith in Christ, even though we have really different takes on some pretty key things. But it's that Catholic space that is really important. And I, in a secular age, I, I really think the recovery of Catholicity is just absolutely heart and center of kind of what it means to be the church and mission in, in a secular age. Hmm. That's, that's really helpful, thank you. So what, one response on the Catholicity of the uh, church is, um, I spent a year in Jerusalem and hmm. Uh, in, in Jerusalem, only 1% of the population is Christian and even a smaller percent is, uh, you know, expatriate uh, Christian. And, uh, so I ended up going to a, a one-time Baptist, uh, now non-denominational church. And it was by far the most diverse group of people I've ever been part of a church with. And it was really interesting because there's the people who are very, very Pentecostal. And then there's the people who are very uh, uh, cessationist or, or, or just not Pentecostal, um, even liturgical that attended the church. I think most, most, uh, services we had people from at least, uh, 10 or so countries. Uh, we did do everything in English, but we had a portion where we spoke the Shema and Hebrew and, and other things. And boy, it gave me appreciation when I came back to the United States of how, uh, how divided and, and, uh, particular so many churches are in the, in the U S and we, in some ways that's the, the privilege of being in a country that, uh, is a free marketplace of religion in a way where anyone can yeah. sort of move to the type of church that they want. But I, you know, it's a privilege, but it's also, um, a drawback, uh, I think to the, to the whole thing. And particularly, I think most Americans don't have a sense of, of that, that shared, uh, 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 sense of being a Christian. So, yeah. and I, I think that partly that comes out of the divided denominational, that's not even talking about sort of the, the cultural polarization, but even just on a denominational level, yeah. um, how, how many there are. So when we talk about the reform tradition, we often start with the figure of John Calvin. And so Chris, who, who was John Calvin? Give us just a brief thumbnail sketch. Um, and then we'll go from there, but, but who was John Calvin? Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> Calvin was one of the reformers uh, during the Reformation, and it's really important to know that Calvin was a second-generation reformer. 
So we usually think of John, Calvin and Luther as the primary kind of reformers. But, you know, Luther is, is 26 years older than Calvin. You know, Luther's born in 1483 and Calvin's not born until in 1509. And so the Reformation is already going by the time that John Calvin kind of comes of age. And mm. um, so Calvin, he's French. Uh, he's trained as a humanist. He wanted to be, you know, his father wanted him to be a lawyer. Um, you know, he was a man of letters, uh, kind of a refined palate. He wasn't necessarily aspiring to be uh, a pastor and a theologian, but uh, was caught up in the Reformation and deeply influenced by Luther and many of, of um, you know, the Reformers' writing. And so Calvin ends up becoming a central figure in the Reformation and central to the Reformed tradition. But, I, you know, in some ways, I kind of need to knock Calvin down a bit, not mm. in, in terms of criticism, but, um, and here's the difference between, say, the Lutheran tradition and the Reformed tradition is that the Lutheran tradition very much is, is their, the guiding light is Martin Luther. I mean, the formula of Concord is, um, half of it is stuff that Luther wrote. Uh, Calvin has n no confessions that have, were officially adopted by Reformed churches. Um, Calvin's influence is massive, but there's a lot of other reformers in the reformed tradition. Ulrich Zingli, um, Heinrich Bullinger, uh, Martin Bootser. And these are men that are older than Calvin and whom influenced Calvin. And, and Calvin's great gift, I think, um, and genius was really as a synthesizer of many different strands of Reformation thought. I mean, he was original thinker, I guess you could say, um, but not like Luther. And Calvin is, he's, he's reading Luther and he's reading, you know, Bootser and all these people. And he's, he's synthesized and he has really one major work, which is the Institute, which he has uh, four editions of that he's working on constantly. Um, and, and for the, for the purpose of instruction of people for the reading of the scriptures and the training of pastors. And so he has commentaries, sermons, and then he has the Institutes. Um, and so Calvin then, I mean, um, I think it's important to, to, to recognize, though, that the Reformed tradition is not, you can't be reduced to the person John Calvin, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When that, that's coming through even by, by, it's not, I mean, there is a Calvinism, I guess that's a, a term as well, but we talk about the Reformed tradition, which is, yeah. which is broader than that. And, and just to, to wrap up this uh, sort of historical part, uh, so that Reformed tradition is, you know, very influential in the development of Protestantism all over the globe. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but particularly I think for an American perspective, you know, the Puritans are quite reformed mm -hmm. in their theology. Uh, who else would you, we, we've mentioned the Dutch, uh, the Dutch tradition, yep. immigrant, Dutch immigrants who are mm -hmm. um, quite reformed or Calvinist in their thinking. Is there any other sort of, um, uh, you know, we're using the word tradition a lot mm -hmm. here, but what other groupings of, of Christians would you put as, being pretty uh, shaped by the Reformed tradition. Well, well, the Scottish Presbyterian Church, mm. John Knox, right, right. Um, very, very influenced, of course, by Calvin and the Reformed, really, because what ends up happening is you have various kinds of political persecutions, right, which send people in exile. So out of England at times, and they go to Geneva, and they find refuge in Geneva, and they're there for two or three years, and then there's regime change, and then they come back, and they bring that Reformed theology back to England, so the Anglican tradition in its early forms is very reformed. The 39 articles is very reformed. Um, Scottish Presbyterianism, of course, in the Netherlands. So there is a, there's a way that part of Calvin's influence is that Geneva was a refugee city. Uh, it still is today, politically speaking. All these people are coming to Geneva um, from these different places and they're, they're like there and they're being influenced and formed by Calvin. And, um, and that's in part, and then they go back to their places and they bring that theology and it gets adapted right. within their own social cultural context. Right. Very interesting. Okay. Well, great. That, that sets us up well to dive into what is the reform tradition. So maybe, uh, treat, uh, treat us like we are coming to your church. We're curious about this. We are curious about the name uh, but we really do want to know about the Reformed tradition. What What is distinctive about uh, being part of the Reformed tradition? How do you How do you begin to answer that question? Well, uh, let me, you know, let me um, let me piggyback off of 
the last comment you made about your experience mm-hmm. in Jerusalem and kind of segue into one of the distinctives of the Reformed tradition. And here I'm, I'm going to put on my hat as a historian a little bit more. Um, uh, but it does, it does relate. And, and, you know, what, what you described, I think, um, in your year in Jerusalem, I had the similar experience when I lived in Germany. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, again, you, it's, and I would call it the exilic experience and, and, and to be in an exilic context means that you don't have the kind of stable institutions that sort of everybody kind of takes for granted as it's always there, right? So you have land, king, and temple in, in Jerusalem, but in Babylon, you have none of those. And so you have to figure out what does it mean to be Jewish without land, king, and temple? And I think, you know, when you have an exilic Christian experience by living overseas in a different way, you have a sense that, hey, you know, that's not my politics, it's not my language, it's it's not my land. And and so it, it just reframes, I think. And, and in many ways, um, the Reformed tradition begins um, really in, in many exilic contexts. And, and here, like a point of comparison with the Lutheran Reformation, you know, the Lutheran Reformation for the most part is a very stable thing, you know, uh, Martin Luther has has the goodwill of Prince Frederick to kind of protect him, and so he's largely autonomous and and largely can work very closely with with the the ruling governing authorities. But in the Reformed tradition, you know, you have um, you have a lot of exilic kinds of experiences later, especially later on, um, where you have cal- you know you have refugees from France, you have you know persecution that's moving people around. And part of the international character of the Reformed tradition early on is that, you know, you've got these outposts in the Netherlands and Switzerland and France, Poland, England, Scotland, and there's various forms of, of kind of refugee status. And um, I think that exilic framework is part of, is, is, a, is a big part of the Reformed tradition. Um, mm. It doesn't always manifest. <laughs> it's not to say that the Reformed can't have a, a very tight political uh, relationship with the state, but um, I think that that is something that's made the Reformed tradition to be, in part, so diverse. Um, you know, you ask me, well, what is mm. the Reformed tradition? I'm like, well, it's a lot of things, right? Mm. Um, mm. And my particular experience of it as a as a pastor in the Christian Reformed Church, it's it's sort of I'm receiving it through this kind of tradition of Dutch neo-Calvinism that comes to the United States. Um, but my formative experience um, as a pastor was really more in the kind of uh, Presbyterian, American mm-hmm. Presbyterian PCA context, right? And so anyways, I don't want to get too granular, um, but, but that's all to say that the Reformed tradition is a really diverse tradition. Um, as far as distinctives goes, um, you know, everybody always talks about the five points of Calvinism, right? That's what most people, if you ask them, what is Calvinism? Right. Well, it's TULIP, right? TULIP, yes, which is an acronym, which I cannot recite all five, but it stands for the five sort of distinctive teachings right, of the tradition. Right, right. So yeah. TULIP um, refers to the Canons of Dort, uh, which is um, 1615 or something. Anyways, TULIP, it's total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Now, that, that is actually not a great representation even of the D- canons of Dort, but it, it you know, kind of refers to what most people understand as doctrines of election and predestination and things like that. And you know, if you want me to talk to, to you about that stuff, I'm happy to do that. But I actually think that's probably pretty well-worn territory for most people. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot more points to Calvinism than, than the doctrines of grace. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so when I... When I, when I teach people about what it means to be reformed, I always, um, I talk about it as like a three-legged stool. Um, on the one leg is the doctrines of grace, right? And I think the, the appeal in America, at least, um, to Calvinism, which we've, you know, we've, over the past 30 years, there was like the young restless reformed movement. The appeal is that right. just really, it's just a very theocentric, God-centered big grace kind of uh, Christianity, which is, an, is a great antidote to, <laughs> you know, the, the Pelagianism of American culture and, and all that kind of stuff. So doctrines of grace is the one thing. But the other two things that I think are really important is 
um, it's, an, it's an ecclesial tradition. It's got a rich sacramental and ecclesial understanding of the church. Um, and so it's a high church tradition. Sometimes we'll talk about high church, high gospel, high church, right? Mm. It's our, our, our view of the church is high because the gospel requires it. Mm. And then, then the other leg of the stool. So you've got doctrines of grace, uh, a kind of sacramental ecclesial vision of the Christian life. And the last one is what, you know, we might call, uh, kind of this world forming Christianity or, uh, there's, this gets to the neo-Calvinism piece where mm. you have a kind of integrative model for understanding how faith and work relate, um, that a really robust understanding of, of vocation beyond just mm-hmm. those who are in ordained ministry. And I think that those categories, especially in a Christian study center um, and campus university culture are really have been very influential. Right. And I think of on that latter one on the, what you call the, the world shaping or, yeah. or world engaging. Yeah. World engaging Christianity. Um, That's Nick Walterstorff, I think his language. Um, I think of someone we've had at Upper House a few times, uh, Vincent Baycoat, mm-hmm. who's down at uh, Wheaton College, yep. who uh, calls himself a, a Kuyperian, which is a reference to um, a particular theolo- the- Dutch theologian mm-hmm. and, and statesman. But um, really, we've, we've had him talk about politics and the way sort of Christians should engage with the public sphere. Um, but I think that's one, one area where I've really found the reform tradition, broadly speaking, very helpful is that there seem to be particular uh, theologians or thinkers or even the, the tradition that really sees uh, and has thought deeply about how the Christian faith should engage with other spheres of life. And um, it, whether that's politics or, or the world of ideas and particularly the world of sort of uh, modern uh, higher education or academia and how to think about ideas that can seem on the surface really foreign to mm-hmm a Christian, a, a traditional Protestant or something like that, but that there is a constructive way to uh, actually engage with them. Someone that uh, I was just reading that calls himself a reformed, someone from the reformed tradition is a uh, Christopher Watkin, who's, who's mm-hmm. down in Australia. And he, ha- he has a new big book called biblical critical theory. Mm-hmm. And it's about how Christians should engage with critical theory, this sort of big issue that a, a lot of Christians are talking about now. And he's he's not in he's he's very Catholic in the small C sense of how he's using the Reformed tradition. He's not trying to shoehorn everything into just footnoting Reformed theologians or something. But you can tell the the just the the approach he's taking to the world of intellectual of academic ideas is one that's rooted in this particular way of thinking about what is God's sort of relationship to the world, what are humans called to be and do. Mm. And then how should we think about uh, these ideas? So I'd say that's one area that I've really appreciated is that third stool yeah. um, that you're talking about. Yeah. Maybe we can talk a little more about the the middle stool, the ecclesial tradition. So what what sets, uh, and I, I don't want this to be too broad, but but what would set um, this ecclesial tradition apart from from other uh, other Protestant traditions, either in the the worship or the liturgy, or, or sort of how is it how is it distinctly reformed? Well. <clears throat> I think for for those of us who are Protestant in America and not part of the mainline church, you know, our reference point is generally going to be broad evangelicalism. Right. And, um, you know, I, I think that American evangelicalism has always been a kind of a tradition in search of an ecclesiology, a doctrine of the church. And there's always that sense that we're reinventing church, you know, and you hear every generation or, you know, the church is dying and we need to, you know, we need to rethink yeah. church or redo church. And I mean, if you've planted a church and you've been in those church planning circles, you know, the, the, I mean, it's a really thin understanding of the church and, mm-hmm. uh, and, you know, Calvin has this remarkable, well, it's not really remarkable by his standards, but, you know, we often think that, oh, um, there's no salvation outside of the church, right? That that's, that's a Catholic thing, right? But all the reformers affirm this, you know, Calvin says, you know, Quoting Cyprian, you know, you can't have God as your father without the church as your mother. Um, you know, there's, you know, that he affirms that doctrine that God has ordained the church for the sake of mission and salvation of the world. And so the giving of, you know, baptism, the sacraments, the preaching of the word, these are all aspects of what it means to be the church. 
and God has entrusted uh, the gospel and the future and history of salvation to the church. <laughs> and so, so there's that sense in which we can, you know, it's, it's, and this is what I mean by a high view of church, right? Like a high view of church isn't necessarily to be like Anglican or Roman Catholic or Orthodox and have like long liturgies and form, formal sort of rites. Um, but it, it's to, it's just to see that the, the visible church is the means by which God chooses to work in the world and, and is really kind of like the hub of his activity. It's not, of course, the only, you know, it's not <laughs> the only place God is at work, but, you know, Paul has this remarkable statement in Romans 8 where he says, you know, creation is groaning for the redemption, you know, for its liberation. And what is it? It's waiting. And what is it waiting on? It's waiting on the revelation of the sons and daughters of God, right? It, the, 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 the creation is waiting on the church to be fully revealed. And there's this sense in the New Testament, I think, especially in Paul, that God will redeem all things and make all things new. And, and we don't know how it'll work, but it's almost like through the eye of a needle, you know, the camel through the eye of a needle, that, that, that God will bring all things through, through this, this people, right? And, it, and, and that's not to say that it's the church's job to do that. I mean, again, there's a lot of theological questions here, but it's just to say that you know, the church is indispensable in God's plan and that's part of it. Yeah. Right. So I could add to that in terms of reflecting on the role of tradition and confessions and stuff, but, but that's part of the answer. Well, what would you, um, how do, how does a reformed tradition think about, um, sacramentalism or, or, or sacraments? What's the relationship that you see there? Yeah, I'll be, try to be, <laughs> Distinct. Yeah, I, I did write a whole dissertation on this, so I won't. Uh, that's right. I won't. That's I right. won't uncork that. I mean, in you know, taking taking Calvin as as a kind of touch point. You know, Calvin thought there was something real happening in the Lord's Supper. Um, that when you come to the supper with faith, that you're communing with Christ, who's in heaven. He 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 pulls back from affirming a physical presence of the elements in the supper, and this is what caused a lot of conflict between himself and the Lutherans. But he says, "We feast just as sumptuously as you do, except not not on the the, the substance." But for Calvin, he has a sense that the Holy Spirit lifts us up to Christ, who is in heaven, such that when we eat His body and drink His blood, we are actually really truly connected with Him, who is in heaven. So there, there's it's a real means of grace, in other. God really works through it. And, and the same with baptism, that when, when, when we baptize, whether it's infants or adults, that, that we are united with Christ. God is doing something. Um, and so, so there's, there's a lot of richness to Calvin's sacramental theology, and, and not just him, but others in the Reformed tradition as well. And, and I think this is an area like of renewal, and I think longing, even amongst I mean, I've had all these fascinating conversations with Baptists and every free people who have learned that I've done work on the sacraments or whatever, and they're asking me questions and they're telling me about doing weekly Lord's Supper as Baptist churches. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I love it. <laughs> right. And so, and I, part of that is we live in this Gnostic age that, you know, that more and more disembodies faith and, and it becomes more and more Manichaean and dualistic and the sacraments are a way to kind of, how does God interact with material things? How does God save material things? And so the sacraments are really important integrative for our spirituality. And so that, that's, that's one of the, that's how I, one thing I would say. Yeah. Well, and, and because you wrote a dissertation, I'll, I'll try to dive a, a little deeper on, on one of these things. I'm just curious. So you mentioned that Calvin thinks something's happening at uh, whenever, whenever anyone takes communion. Um, but doesn't think uh, or do, doesn't teach that there's a full uh, transubstantiation of of the elements. Mm -hmm. Why doesn't he think that? Like, what's the what's the departing uh, teaching or 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 foundation for that versus the the Lutheran or Catholic perspective on this? Okay, um, you're 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 baiting me um, <laughs> to have a really complex answer. So for, for you know, all the debates about the sacraments in the Reformation era, and this goes back to the Middle Ages as well, are really uh, debates about the nature and person of Christ and how are the natures related? What is the nature of the union of them? And for Calvin, 
his objection to the physical pre- well one um there's a tendency within roman catholic and even in some lutheran traditions to want to make the elements themselves the object of one's devotion right such that they become interesting in and of themselves and so eucharistic adoration would be an example and you know again there's very fine arguments for eucharistic adoration i don't agree with them but there there is a way that for i think the, the reform sensibility was that these are signs they point beyond themselves they really doing something but don't get fixated on the thing itself right and so that's part of this of resistance to what calvin perceived and this is goes back to zwingli and the and the swiss reformers as a kind of uh idolatrous worship of things and a kind of uh you know almost magical you know approach and orientation to them that they really wanted to say you know god is sovereign uh, God's grace is free. This is not something you can manipulate. But with that said, what Calvin wanted to affirm that the Lutherans didn't think he could affirm is that there, there truly is this durable grace that is given when one comes to the supper. Right? And, um, hmm. and that that's really important. And I think there's that objective character. And I think the appeal of the sacraments um, for many evangelicals is just this sense that, you know what, you know, I go to these worship services and, you know, the worship is kind of meant to get me all riled up and emotional and I want to, I'm supposed to feel something. And if I come away from my worship service, not feeling like I've had this strange, warm feeling with God or an experience that somehow I've done something wrong or the worship is not filled with the spirit or whatever. And I think that this orientation is just very problematic. And what, what the sacraments do is say, listen, you know, like every time I eat dinner with my, my wife and my family, if I don't have an emotional experience, doesn't mean it's not a meaningful experience, right? (laughs) We're communing together and it's the practice of that. And there's, there's something real happening there. And there is, there's a way that the supper, it's like it, it says, you know, grace is not about you having an experience. It's about you receiving something that Christ offers you, which is himself. And, and it's a very grounding thing. And, Um, When we first started the church here, most of my congregation, it was about 15 of us, had very little experience with weekly Lord's Supper or very, even a higher view that I've been um, explaining. And some of them were kind of like, you want to do weekly Lord's Supper? But I said, this is a condition. You want me to plant this church? This is the condition. Weekly Lord's Mm -hmm. Supper. Because I knew that if I could get weekly Lord's Supper, I could get everything else, Mm -hmm. theologically speaking. And it's true 12 years later. And I told the people who, who were kind of hesitant and I, you know, I had them read stuff and we talked about it. I said, listen, give me two years, come to the worship two years and coming to the table on a regular basis. And I guarantee you won't want to go back. And universally that has been the case. And so when people who came to our church and they leave and they go to, and they're trying to find a church and, and it, because again, the supper, it does its work on us when we're not even thinking about it, right? It, it's, it's so deeply formative. Um, and Calvin understood this, and this is the Christian tradition has understood this. And, and I think instinctually, even people who are coming from non-sacramental traditions are wanting to go that direction because they're like, there's something here. It's biblical. Right. Well, it makes me think of something even, even in, uh, you could say more low church evangelical spaces, uh, which is where I, I hang out. Um, there's definitely a desire to move, uh, at least in the circles I hang out in, to move toward a re-embrace or an embrace for the first time of spiritual disciplines. Mm-hmm. Mostly, often those are individualistic or understood as sort of what am I doing on a daily level? Um, though, though there's often a communal aspect to them, but the, uh, a, you know, a more regular taking of the, of the elements would be, you know, I think would fit in line with some of that, at least for, for low church evangelicals is th- there is a sort of theological dimension to this. That's always there, but there's also a practice dimension or a discipline mm-hmm dimension that works on you in ways that aren't um, necessarily intellectual or, or mental, but they're, they're something more embodied yeah. than that. So yeah. I can definitely appreciate that. What, one more question as we're just uh, outlining the, the very lightest outline of, yeah. of the Reformed tradition. Is there a Reformed uh, tradition view of the Bible? Or is that, is that not exactly um, how, how you would think of it? But is there a way of approaching the Bible that is distinctly uh, distinctly reformed. Yeah, I I mean, if we're not talking about whether about questions of inerrancy 
and the fundamentalist debates, right? That's that's a different category, right? right? Um, yeah. No, I, I do, and, and it has to do with like what we call a reformed hermeneutic of scripture, which is mm-hmm. a way of reading the Bible um, that's, you know, again, the, the easy contrast would be from, say, a dispensational way of reading the Bible, right? Where it's more uh, covenantal uh, in terms of, and, and, and I would say that category of covenant uh, plays a really big role in the way that reform, the reform tradition has read the Bible. So that becomes this integrative category. And for Calvin in particular, it kind of links up the Testaments. And so like an example of that covenantal um, hermeneutic for Calvin, which has become the kind of one of the major arguments for infant baptism is to say, well, mm-hmm. in, in the old Testament, under the old covenant, children or least boys were circumcised on the eighth day. And that was a sign of their belonging to Israel, right? Which is a prefigures the church. And Calvin would say that infant baptism is, you know, uh, a form of spiritual circumcision of sorts where, the children of believers become part of that body, right? And so there you see that, that ref, that's a kind of covenantal hermeneutic at, at play. But, but, but that, that's at multiple levels, you know, um, that the Reformed will, will kind of think in covenantal terms. Right. And, and there's, a, there's a sense of uh, deep continuity, I guess you could say, yes. with the covenantal reading of the Bible. Exactly. That would, that, yeah, that would allow um, someone like Calvin to look back at ancient Israel practices and see yeah. how they connect to church practices. And real quick too, Calvin has commentaries yeah. on almost all of the Old Testament. I mean, it's it's remarkable through the prophets. It's it's really comprehensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, Luther does too, mm-hmm. but but I mean, it, it's 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 incredible how much time he gives to to uh, to the Old Testament. And and I think again, this is important because I do think that there is a kind of uh, latent. Um, What's the word? Um, what's the heresy that denies the Old Testament in the in the early church? Uh, uh, the Marcionites. Yeah, yeah. There's a kind of Marcionitism yeah. that I, yeah. I think tends that some evangelical falls into, and and so mm-hmm. yeah. Right, right. Yeah, I can I can recall recent conversations about that actually in the broader um, uh, the broader discussion. Yeah. So Chris, I want to jump to give you a couple. Um, uh, buzzwords, keywords mm-hmm. that I have associated with the reform tradition. If you read sort of magazines or Twitter or something, you, these, these might come across. Just want to get your take on, on how you think about these. The first was actually going to be covenant theology. We just talked about that. Mm-hmm. I'm someone who's written a good amount on dispensationalism. Mm-hmm. And so I know covenant theology as uh, sort of the, within the conservative Protestant world as sort of the major alternative, uh, alternative competitor whatever uh, whatever term you want so i think we we covered mm-hmm. that but uh, but another term is sphere sovereignty mm-hmm. I've, I've heard this term at various points uh can you give us a sense what is what does sphere sovereignty mean uh in the reformed tradition where does that word come from you know? well it's a it's a really late development <laughs> i mean um it come it's it's you know it's a category that abraham kuyper uh develops um, and it, it functions, it's actually kind of a complicated concept and it's a little bit ambiguous as well. I mean, um, again, it's like, I, I've been trained as a scholar and you ask me these questions and sometimes I ask them more as a scholar than as a pastor, but, um, you know, sphere of sovereignty basically is this idea that, um, and, and, and it, and it's something that emerges in the context of modernity, right? Where you have, um, in the Netherlands, you you have like an advancing like secularism uh, post uh, French Revolution. Uh, there's 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 a lot of resistance now to uh, Christianity, and there's there's a, there's a temptation within a kind of fundamentalist mindset to kind of retreat to pull away, and somebody like like Kuiper who he he kind of wants to be orthodox and modern. He, he wants to, to defend biblical faith, but he also wants to be modern. He wants to not be irrelevant. And so he, he starts the free, Amst- the free University of Amsterdam. And, and one of the first talks he gives has to do with sphere sovereignty. Um, and it's really this idea that um, there are these distinct spheres. Like you used to think in terms of two kingdoms, right? You have the church and the state or the church and, and, and government and politics. Uh, in, a, in a sense, sphere sovereignty sort of expands that a little bit. Um, that there's these distinct realms, 
spheres, right? Which is, um, and you know, you have uh, politics and you have church and you have uh, education and the family and uh, science and the arts and architecture, right? These are all these different categories of spheres. And, and each one has their own sort of integrity, their own sort of logic that can't be dominated by one other sphere completely like the church, right? Mm -hmm. And yet for Kuiper, they all have like their own God-given integrity and should point to him, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, there, there, there's a lot about the category that kind of resonates, but I mean, um, with just this idea that how do we, and, and this is fed, I think the kind of faith and work movement right. and university culture. Like, so if you have biologists in your group and you're, you're asking, well, you know, there's very strict methods and, you know, uh, how to, how to learn biology and how to study and what you do. And, and that can't, you know, the church can't dictate that. And yet there's a way in which those things, if you understand them deeply enough in a Christ-like way can point to God. Right. Right. And so they, so, so there's, it's a kind of, there's a kind of pluralism, a Christian pluralism or, uh, of kind of epistemology, if you will. Right. Um, so, so that, that's in general. So you have these different spheres and, and, um, you know, how does, how does, how does Christ become Lord in these different spheres? Right. And, and so each person within those that is working within those spheres in terms of part of discipleship is learning what it means to bring Christ into these areas. Right. Yeah. As a total outsider to, to the, to the reformed uh, conversation on this, it seems to me like what the sphere sovereignty idea does is allows the gospel de to be deeply contextualized. Yes in different spheres. And so the question that a biologist might ask is, uh, what does it mean to be a Christian biologist? Mm -hmm. uh, and, and to make it that, at least for within that sphere, mm -hmm. that narrow of a question, which would lean on you know very specific uh, practices and methods and engagement with others. Um, there's of course a universal way to be a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we're all called to be disciples and follow Jesus, but there's always these, these very specific contextual ways to do it within a different, a specific industry or, yep. or business or whatever. And to me that from a very sort of, uh, utilitarian level, that's what the sphere sovereignty idea gives me as a way to, th to, to even acknowledge that, yeah. that, that there are, that there's these unique contexts. Okay. Next, uh, next, uh, sort of, uh, uh term presuppositional apologetics. So this is something that, uh, I'm a historian, so I may mm -hmm. maybe know a little more about this, but there's certainly been a a tradition of doing apologetics, of defending mm -hmm. the Christian faith as you know as as uh, rational and everything else from this particular stance of presuppositional apologetics. And I, in my head, associate that with reformed mm -hmm. theologians mm -hmm. and and thinkers. But what do you make of presuppositional apologetics? It's been a while since I've thought about this. Uh, you're right. I mean, it does have its roots. I think, in particular, Cornelius Van Til at Westminster right. Seminary, who's deeply influenced by Kuiper and, and Herman Bovink, who was another neo Calvinist. But it's, it's this idea, generally speaking, that, um, you know, the opposite, you know, the alternative to presuppositional apologetics would be something like evidential, you know, like if we can amass, you know, um, the evidence, right. Historical, archeological, scientific, and we can show, you know, and prove, um, but the reform part, part of this is a deeper understanding of reformed understanding of human nature and its fallenness and the ways in which belief is, is at its root, always going to be an act of faith of conviction prior to evidence. And um, yeah, I mean, that, that's about all I, I want to say because <laughs> I don't, I don't, it's not like I disbelieve in apologetics, um, but, but the industry of apologetics I think is problematic. And I mean, I guess I would fall sure, into sure. a presuppositional apologetics um, uh, category, but I, I always love what Karl Barth says that a, um, a good, you know, a good apologetics is a good dogmatics. And, and what he meant by that is when you compellingly preach the faith of the church in its whole, um, that itself is its, is, is the most powerful apologetic. And, and in a way that is a presuppositional thing. Right. And so, um, you know, but as a strategy, you know, um, you know, the priority of Christ, you know, 
and the faith and ex just expositing it itself is its own own yeah. defense of the faith. Yeah, I get that. I, I think of the, uh, so I, I grew up in a culture that was much more the evidential mm -hmm. uh, apologetics. I, I mean, I think even of the big uh, apologetics book, Evidence That Demands oh, yeah. a Verdict, Josh right? McDowell. So it's, it's like yeah. presenting this, yeah, presenting this evidence. Mm -hmm. And and as as I grew and, and read more, I tended to associate that way of doing apologetics as almost like enlightenment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like, you know, we're all right, reasonable, commonsensical people. If you can hit me over the head with enough evidence, I'm going to just have to agree with you that you're right and yeah. I must become a Christian or something. And what I what I appreciate about the presuppositional part, and these are, you know, people like Van Til were writing, you know, early, mid 20th century, was they seem to anticipate some of the, you could say, postmodern mm -hmm. uh, moves mm -hmm. about shared understandings and worldviews and, and these things that I think actually a lot of people that have no idea who Van Til or others are sort of invoke I, I even think the term worldview mm -hmm. which i grew up associating very strongly with a christian apologetical yep. uh, uh framework um I, i've heard a lot of people who aren't christian talk about people's worldviews and i think particularly in an in a much more recent context where there seem to be just wildly different understandings of basic facts and other things that people resort to something like a presuppositional uh like we all have to agree on what truth is or something like that yeah. to to get anywhere Anyway, I, I found that interesting that these these reformed apologetics people from many many decades ago were somehow not not necessarily thinking about post modernity, but were actually rooting their their apologetics in some of those same insights, uh, maybe from a different direction. No, I think that's a good observation. I think that's very true. I mean, what what um, Charles Taylor talks about the social imaginary is mm -hmm. is kind of like what I, a, a better word than worldview. And Jamie Smith makes a lot of this right. He's very critical of worldview language. And I think he's right, because if you think about what is it that informs our deep convictional world, you know, beliefs about the world, it's more than just like ideas. And I think worldview mm -hmm. thinking tends to be a little bit too here, right? right? Where if you think about how, I mean, I've been saying this more and more to groups of pastors when the issue of apologetics comes up. And I can say that, you know, like whenever I have people in my congregation, teenagers or young, whoever, and they're struggling with their faith, you know, generally a lot of times, and it's not simply like, I just don't know if there's enough evidence or I don't know if this is reasonable. There's, there's often bound up with this, especially for young people, the sense of belonging, right? Like mm -hmm. the, because questions of identity in our culture are so, so sort of diffuse. And, and I think one of the strongest apologetics the church has to do is give young people, they're all people really a sense of belonging in Jesus, that's mm -hmm. this goes back to the the nature of the church. Um, so, so there's that's that social imaginary where our our convictions about the world are just shaped by so many different things that are very embodied and image based, and it's just all surrounding atmosphere. And Taylor, I think, is just helpful for that. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, okay, last last uh, term for you, and you mentioned it earlier in the in the conversation, and that's uh, young, restless, and reformed. So this is a, a a phrase, and maybe it's a little dated now, but it, it refers to this resurgence of, particularly among younger people, mm -hmm. um, a, a an embrace of reformed theology, as far as I can tell. Uh, what do you make of that as someone in the tradition? I mean, we're we're now probably twenty years since that term was maybe fifteen years since that term was coined, so maybe it, yeah. it does feel a little out of date, but um, yeah, yeah. What, how do you see that? Yeah, I alluded to this a little bit earlier. I mean, I, I do think that, um, yeah, probably 25 years ago, there really was a resurgence of reformed theology within broad evangelicalism. And I usually associate it with people like John Piper, Tim Keller, Don Carson, you know, what became the gospel coalition. Um, there's a handful of other people and it was, it tends to be more Baptistic, Keller was right. kind of, you know, the, 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 the PCA Presbyterian church in America people always had a sort of complex relationship to this, but yeah, I mean, it's sort of a rediscovery of, of Puritanism and the reform tradition, Calvin. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, on the whole, I, I think it's been really good. I mean, I, I just, I just had a, a long meeting with somebody earlier today who's new to our church. Who's, who's not a Calvinist at all. In fact, he's written a book against Calvinism <laughs> And he says that he, he's coming to our church, arriving 40 minutes, because he, he you know, appreciates the preaching, the substance, the worship, 
the just and and he can't handle his Baptist church anymore. And and he's like, but all these churches are all they're all Calvinist. And you know, I, I, you know, I, I think what's interesting is that when you look at the literature, the popular literature on in evangelical Christianity, most of it's being done by people who are reformed. And um, that's not to say that Arminians and Arminian traditions don't have deep theology. I just think for, for a number of different reasons, <laughs> it's, it's been the, the most substantive theological um, tradition and renewal recently within Protestantism or evangelicalism has reformed. And I mean, takes the scripture seriously, takes God seriously, takes grace seriously. And um, that's very attractive to people. So, yeah. so that's what, that's yeah. one answer. I mean, I have, you know, my quibbles and things, but overall I've, I think it's been a renewing thing. Right. Okay. That that's helpful. Um, I, I've observed the same thing that a lot of the people, the people I tend to want to read now are either Anglican or reformed. And yeah. I don't know if that's my problem or, yeah. or just the situation. Uh, out there. I do think of people like, uh, I mean, th th there's always a, a, outstanding exceptions. People like Roger Olson. He's a, he's a theologian. Mm -hmm. I think he was at Bethel for a long time, but I, I don't know where he is now, but um, he's someone from the Armenian tradition that, that has debated a lot on these sort of very fine uh, points. I, I tend to like to read him too, but um, I think you're right. There's a sense, and Tim Keller just passed away recently. Um, one of the major figures in that young, restless and reformed uh, movement that I would say here at, at Upper House, Oh, where we we don't channel any particular theological tradition too strongly, but we've really appreciated, particularly Keller's um, thinking around relating to culture and politics yeah. as uh, sort of not fitting into any of the boxes that are currently on offer in the broader culture. And um, I know he, reading a bunch of the obituaries and, and remembrances, I know that came out of a pretty significant commitment to, um, uh, you know, reform theology or his understanding of, of, um, of that. So, um, yeah, I've, uh, I mean, yeah. one Calvin or I'm sorry, uh, Keller was a very, uh, good student of neo-Calvinism, Kuiper mm. and Bovink, um, Gerhardus Voss, um, through Ventil and stuff at Westminster. And so he really, and, and he, he made, you know, in the church context, a lot of these ideas gave him legs. And so, mm. um, I mean, America, I mean, I mean, I know all the obituaries are, you know, but we'll see in 20 years, but I mean, I think Keller's influence on American Protestantism is pretty profound. And he really did take the reformed tradition, um, at least from the Presbyterian category out of a kind of sectarian ghetto a little bit into a more of a mainstream and made it, made it more accessible to people who are outside of it. And that's been a great gift. And I, I so appreciated that. Right. Right. And by the way, just something else I've observed is, uh, we've mentioned the, the theologian Herman Bovink a few times, uh, who is, I, I, he must've lived at least a hundred years ago, maybe a hundred years ago, <laughs> yeah. something like yeah. that. Uh, anyway, he's getting a little re renaissance mm -hmm. as well. I've, mm -hmm. I've heard his name around. There's a new biography of him. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that seems to be making the rounds. So uh, very interesting how some of these figures who you assume are going to be forgotten actually come back and yeah. are quite relevant uh, to the moment. Well, Chris, I want to ask just one more question. And that's a, a question looking forward. Uh, if, if you could just put into words a, a general hope for uh, reform Christianity, whatever, whatever that means to you, for this, this next uh, five years, 10 mm -hmm. years, what are you hoping you see, maybe more on the ground, what are you hoping you see reformed uh, people, people who go to reformed churches doing? Mm -hmm. um, maybe they're already doing it, but yeah, what's your hopes for the next season here? Well, I, it would be in a kind of renewal of a kind of reformed Catholic vision that I've been trying to express. And, and I think that reformed Catholic vision, one is just a kinder, gentler Calvinism. <laughs> compared to some of the young restless reformed stuff. Um, one that, one that also has a, a richer sacramental understanding is just has a deeper appreciation of the early reformed tradition. Um, mm -hmm. and, and just figuring out what it means to be the church in a secular age. And I, I think it involves both of these things, more Catholicity and more of a rich sacramental vision. And so that, that's what I'm trying to model here. And, and, and do, and, and it's, it is happening, you know? Um, but that, but that, that would be my, my hope for the reformed tradition. 
That's great. Well, that's a, a hopeful note to end on. So Chris, it was great having you, great hearing your thoughts on all of these uh, different topics that I threw your mm-hmm. way. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Hey, it's been great to be able to share um, kind of ministry context and a little bit about the Reformed tradition. So thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.